This morning's lecture uh, will be, I hope, uh, controversial. Uh, I hope it's controversial because what I think I'm saying is completely at odds with what most everyone else is saying. So I'll try to say it in a nice way, but sometimes saying it in a nice way uh, makes people think you agree with them when I really don't. So uh, a little bit of an introduction first. Defining evangelicalism has become a cottage industry, and sometimes I don't think it's worth the effort since there seems no way to achieve consensus. So we tend to choose our favorites, let them define it, and we move on until someone irritates us by the way their definition uh, is framed, and then we become a part of the cottage industry ourselves. So having tossed some dust in the eyes of this whole endeavor, I think there is value in this unhappy quest for what we will probably never achieve, that is defining evangelicalism. One of the more interesting elements of the cottage industry is what I began to hear at Trinity in the 80s and 90s from two of my colleagues for whom defining evangelicalism was really important one of whom was a church historian and the other a New Testament specialist. One's initials was John Woodbridge and the other's D.A. Carson. Both of whom have said that we have to define the term theologically or prescriptively and not sociologically. For them, Mark Knoll and David Bebbington were defining the term sociologically because they thought they looked out over history said, these are the evangelicals, and then from that sociological group emerged four crucial defining characteristics. Biblicism, conversionism, crucicentrism, and activism. But this so-called sociological approach was not the proper approach, they argued, and they are joined by many today who seem to agree with them that Noel and Bebbington define evangelicalism sociologically. Carson and Woodbridge wanted to define evangelicalism prescriptively or theologically or biblically, which for them are interchangeable terms. Today I want to begin by turning this around. This group also refers to itself as confessional evangelicals, and this whole movement got a good push for itself when David Wells decided enough was enough for American evangelicalism, and you can see this in a number of his books, beginning with No Place for Truth. I will ignore the irony that David Wells has himself become fascinated with sociology as a discipline and seems to hang out more with folks like Peter Berger than anyone else. I'll ignore that. So they set out to define evangelicalism right. And one of their crucial statements is called the Cambridge Declaration, which is a strong reaffirmation of the solas of the Reformation. One of the signatories, Al Mohler Jr., recently wrote up a statement defining himself as a confessional evangelical. And though he never did mention any specific confession, which to me at least strains the very meaning of being confessional, but in that statement by Moeller, he basically affirms that a confessing evangelical 
is one who affirms the reformer's theology. So I'd like to ask a question. Who's defining evangelicals sociologically? Noel and Bevington, who choose the 18th and 19th century? Or the confessing evangelicals, who choose the 16th century? My answer is obvious. Both of them, in part, are defining evangelical sociologically. And yet, this is, of course, a bit picky because both the Noel Bebbington line and the confessing evangelical line want also to say that these evangelicals derive their theology from the Bible, so their view is theological and biblical, and not just sociological. As it is a reductionism to think Noel and Bebbington are defining the term sociologically, so it is a reductionism to think the confessing evangelicals are just using a sociological definition, but it is also a reductionism to think it's just biblical. In fact, they have heorized the reformers and their confessions, and even though they don't confess them, and those that flow from them, and they think those confessions are crystal clear articulations of what is in the Bible. But so did the 18th and 19th century evangelicals think that their views on the cross were just what the Bible said and no more and nothing less. So today I will contend with you that neither Noel and Bebbington nor the confessing evangelical line is as biblical as any of them thinks. I will contend that yes, there are sociological dimensions at work in how we frame the word evangelical. I will further contend that the sociological dimensions of this cottage industry needs once again to be willing to be checked against scripture in order to become truly evangelical. And to do this, I want to examine what the word gospel means. And this is the foundation for why I said yesterday that to begin to understand evangelicalism, we must begin with personal conversion and being born again. I will contend, and this might be controversial for some, that the desire to see people saved has led evangelicalism to reconstruct the gospel. My contention will be that the doctrine of salvation has been abstracted into four or five principles that can be rhetorically bundled in such a way that they are capable of precipitating decisions. And thus, I will contend that the gospel equals personal salvation is actually not the gospel of Jesus or the apostles. So now I want to establish these, these facts. First, I want to begin by sketching how folks today understand the gospel, and I'm reasonably confident I've got this right. In essence, the gospel is soteriology for contemporary evangelicals, and this means that the gospel is the plan for personal salvation. And one can pick one's evidence from the statements of faith on megachurch sites or from books on the gospel, like Greg Gilbert's What is the Gospel? or from gospel tracts, or which I will do for the moment from the website of the Cambridge Declaration, which as I read it is a sophisticated and theologically rich reaffirmation in modern dress of the theology of the reformers. 
Here is a statement wherein is embedded how the Cambridge Declaration understands the gospel. And this is going to be, this sounds like theologians writing rather than anybody who cares to be understood. Justification is by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. This is the article by which the church stands or falls. Today this article is often ignored, distorted, or sometimes even denied by leaders, scholars, and pastors who claim to be evangelical. Although fallen human nature has always recoiled from recognizing its need for Christ's imputed righteousness, modernity greatly fuels the fires of this discontent with the biblical gospel. We have allowed this discontent to dictate the nature of our ministry and what it is we are preaching. Many in the church growth movement believe that sociological understanding of those in the pew is as important to the success of the gospel as is the biblical truth which is proclaimed. As a result, theological convictions are frequently divorced from the work of the ministry. The marketing orientation in many churches takes this even further, erasing the distinction between the biblical word and the world, robbing Christ's cross of its offense, and reducing Christian faith to the principles and methods which bring success to secular corporations. While the theology of the cross may be believed, these movements are actually emptying of its meaning. There is no gospel except that of Christ's substitution in our place, whereby God imputed to him our sin and imputed to us his righteousness. Because he bore our judgment, we now walk in his grace as those who are forever pardoned, accepted, and adopted as God's children. There is no basis for our acceptance before God except in Christ's saving work, not in our patriotism, churchly devotion, or moral decency. The gospel declares what, has, what God has done for us in Christ. It is not about what we can do to reach him. That's the Cambridge Declaration. I don't believe that this is weird. I think this is basically how almost all evangelicals understand the gospel. A few observations. First, one of the forms of bellicosity among neo-Puritans is to argue that if you deny their theology, it is probably because of your fallen nature, that if you were more submissive to God, you'd give up on and embrace their theology. No one, of course, wants to admit that their theology is shaped to protect their fallen nature, but I do agree with them that some, in fact, do seem to have that as a driving force. But it sure seems to me that the Neo-Puritans, who believe in the noetic impacts of the fall more than anyone else in the world, ought to be a little more humble about their systematic articulations of Scripture because they believe in the fall. Second, I do think there's too much seeker-friendliness in some churches, and I attend the one that invented the term seeker-friendly, but what they see here is nothing more than a caricature. Yes, criticisms can be leveled, but we need to do it in an informed manner and not in an apocalyptic manner. Third, I now want to get to what matters most to me, and it is this statement that they made. There is no gospel 
except that of Christ's substitution in our place, whereby God imputed to him our sin and imputed to us his righteousness. In essence, the gospel here is double imputation as the mechanism at work in justification. I will argue that this, in fact, is not what the New Testament means by the word gospel. Whether you listen to classic revivalists or to sophisticated pastor theologians, the essence of the gospel is a version or reduction of justification by faith. We are sinners and guilty before God. God is loving but also fiery in wrath. Jesus died in our place as a substitution, satisfying the justice of God and absorbing the wrath of God as a propitiatory sacrifice And if we but admit that we are sinners and accept that our only hope is in the shed blood or death of Christ, we can be reconciled to God and spend eternity with God and the saints. The Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals clearly thinks this all should be expressed in terms of double imputation. One could discuss here whether or not the New Testament explicitly teaches double imputation, which it does not. Or one could discuss whether or not double imputation is a sound construct from texts like 1 Corinthians 1.30, which reads, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, which reads, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In my own judgment, it is entirely reasonable to construct a theology of double imputation from these texts, but it remains a construct. Bob Gundry, not exactly a progressive liberal theologian, denies that the New Testament teaches double imputation, and D.A. Carson admits begrudgingly It is not unambiguous, but he affirms it as a true construct. Or one could say with some theologians today, like Tom Wright, that the Bible simply doesn't teach double imputation, and you can't pass righteousness from one person the way you pass gas between two tubes. But what concerns me is that the alliance of confessing evangelicals, and they are not alone in this, and I don't want to pick on them so much as use them as an example of, our, of this belief, these people contend that this is the essence of the gospel. I contend this contention is sociologically derived. This is Reformation theology, pure and simple, and it is not New Testament teaching, pure and simple. No one in the New Testament, not Jesus, not Peter, not Hebrews, not John, and not even the Apostle Paul explicitly ever affirms anything like double imputation. Therefore, I conclude it is contrary to sola scriptura, at least when defined as prima scriptura, to contend that this is the essence of the gospel. Everyone in the New Testament knows what the gospel is, 
and they never say anything like double imputation. So I conclude that it is contrary to the plain meaning of the New Testament to contend that the essence of the gospel is double imputation if we want to get our understanding of gospel from the New Testament. I need now to spell out my reasons for this denial. Some of you may be aware of my new book, The King Jesus Gospel, but even if so, I want to re-express the contentions there because they form the necessary logic of my contention with you this morning. The gospel today is a version of salvation. But the gospel today has been reduced to salvation, the plan of personal salvation, and it has created what I call a salvation culture that is designed to answer who is in and who is out. Most people today think this personal plan of salvation is the gospel itself. I call this construct of the gospel the Soterian gospel, a gospel shaped by the doctrine of soteria, the Greek word for salvation. But a careful rereading of the New Testament leads to a different conclusion altogether, and I will also contend that the gospel of the New Testament is capable of creating a gospel culture that absorbs and reshapes what we mean by a salvation culture. So what is the gospel of the New Testament? A methodological point reshapes the entire discussion. Where do we find a definition of the gospel in the New Testament? There is one and only one place, 1 Corinthians 15. Either beginning at verse 3 and ending at 5, or ending at verse 8, or ending at verse 28, there is a discussion about where Paul's gospel statement ends, and while it would be impossible to prove with certainty which is the better answer, I think the evidence supports more that it ends at verse 28 than anywhere else. The reason for that is that the other gospel articulations of the New Testament are not complete until they get history wrapped up in the kingdom of God, where God will be all in all. What does matter is that 1 Corinthians 15 defines the gospel. And what do we find there? Eight themes. First, that the gospel Paul is gospeling, and I use the word gospeling rather than evangelizing because evangelism has a bad odor today. So let's just use the New Testament the way it uses it and create a word like gospeling. The, Paul, the gospel Paul is gospeling in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us, is the one and only gospel. Second, that the gospel is, in 1 Corinthians 15 is not Paul's gospel, but the apostolic gospel. The words Paul uses are words about tradition and what it said about the gospel. Third, this gospel is about events in the life of Jesus, not elements in the plan of personal salvation. It is about the life, by way of inference, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. In other words, gospeling is telling the story of Jesus as Messiah. If our gospeling seeks to persuade sinners to admit that they are in need of a savior, this version of the apostolic gospel 
declares the story of Jesus as the one and only true story about God's ways in the world. Fourth, the gospel is the resolution to the incompleteness of Israel's story. Over and over in this passage, not least in according to the scriptures, and elsewhere when Jesus and the apostles were gospeling, there is a constant connection to Israel's story coming to completion in Jesus. Fifth, salvation flows from this story about Jesus, and in particular in the gospel state of 1 Corinthians 15, it flows from the death of Jesus for our sins. The gospel results in salvation, or it leads to salvation, or it effects salvation. Paul does not tell us how. He doesn't even mention justification by faith in his gospel statement, and he doesn't get close to double imputation. His gospel story is not driven by a salvation plan but it is driven by Israel's story. Sixth, the story of Jesus is a complete story of Jesus. It is not just Good Friday. It is not just incarnation. But it is about the full story of Jesus, from God's throne down to earth and back to God's throne, focusing, as it does in the book of Acts, on the resurrection of Jesus. Seventh, and this is more critical than I hear enough of, the gospel is about giving Jesus the right names. Labels matter because labels interpret. And the way to interpret Jesus with a label in a way that tells the gospel is to call him Messiah or King and Lord and Son. That's according to 1 Corinthians 15. Savior is implicit here, and it does emerge in other places, but notice that it doesn't even appear when Paul talks about Jesus in his gospel statement. He is Israel's Messiah, the one true King and Lord over all. Eighth, the gospel ends when God is all in all. It ends with Aslan on the throne, with the lamb morphing into a lion, and with all of created order in its proper place doing what it was designed to do. In other words, a good gospel presentation ends in Revelation 20 through 22. Now this is really only my first point, so I want to proceed to a second. It won't have eight subpoints. If 1 Corinthians is the apostolic gospel, and it is, and this matters profoundly to anyone who wants a biblical definition of gospel, then a second powerful set of texts comes from the apostolic gospeling in the book of Acts. There are, in fact, seven gospel sermons in Acts, unless you count Stephen's speech, in which case there would be eight. I don't, but that's because it ends with finger-pointing instead of a call to conversion. I'll ignore Stephen for now. Sit down someday and read Acts 2, 3, 4, 10 through 11, 13, 14, and 17. Or just read the sermons in them. Then read them all over again carefully with this question. If these two apostles, Peter and Paul, 
who ought to know what they're doing are gospeling in these passages, what was their gospel? What was the gospel of the gospeling sermons in the book of Acts? I hope you conclude what I concluded a few years back, and I hope you don't do what I did. I was writing stuff on a gospel and atonement, one of which was a popular book called Embracing Grace, one for a more pastoral context called A Community Called Atonement. Both of those books were rooted in a book with Baylor called Jesus and His Death. When I was working on those books, I was convinced the gospel was the message of salvation. And in that work, I happened quite often onto the sermons and acts and kept saying to myself quietly, but these apostolic sermons don't do what I'm doing. I didn't think the apostles were wrong, but they didn't fit how I was describing salvation and atonement theory as gospel. I didn't happen to think that I was wrong either, so I ignored the book of Acts. But for a lecture on the book of Acts that I gave at the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa, I decided to work on the gospel in the book of Acts. And I have to confess, it was one of those rare academic experiences where everything fell into place, not unlike the way Chesterton described his conversion, at least one of the times he described his conversion. He has seven different conversion stories. Formerly, I couldn't quite figure out what to make of the apostolic gospel sermons and acts, but I thought I had salvation more or less figured out. But in working on that lecture in South Africa, it suddenly dawned on me that what I was calling gospel was not what Peter and Paul called the gospel. The gospel referred to something else. What might that be? Go ahead and read Acts 2, 3, 4, 10 through 11, 13, 14, and 17, and you will conclude what I concluded. The gospel of the apostles was not the plan of salvation or how to get saved. And it wasn't about atonement theory. Instead, those seven apostolic sermons had one and the same perception of the gospel. The announcement that the narrative of Israel's story had come to completion in the story of Jesus as Israel's king and Lord. In other words, the sermons in the book of Acts take the gospel of 1 Corinthians 15 and make it sing and sting in real live preaching. Seven sermons are hired to digest at once, and they are also hard to synthesize into a few words. So I'll just make a couple observations but before I do that, I want to quote from the heart of Peter's gospel sermon to Cornelius, who lived at Caesarea Maritima, the newly fashioned city built by Herod the Great. Remember that Cornelius is a Gentile. We were in Caesarea in June, and it, really, it struck me as a really good place to explain the gospel to Gentiles, which is just what Peter did in these words. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of shalom through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea beginning in the Galilee after the baptism that John preached 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So now let me say a few things about the sermons in Acts. First, the gospel in Acts is driven, and I mean this is the framing story, is driven by the story of Israel coming to completion in the story of Jesus, and in particular, in the glories of his resurrection and exaltation. Observe as you read the texts in Acts how frequently the apostles Peter and Paul are using the Old Testament texts. In the text I just quoted, Peter caps it off with this expression, all the prophets testify about him. Then second, these apostolic gospel sermons declare a story about Jesus. The whole story about Jesus, his life and death and burial, resurrection and vindication. And third, their focus is words about Jesus like Messiah, Lord, Prince, Servant, Holy and Righteous One, the author of life and the prophet. Peter said in Acts 2.36 at the concluding point of his sermon that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and King. It can be said, in other words, that gospeling is about hermeneutics. It's about how to make sense of history in light of who Jesus is. My fourth point, which would take two weeks to unpack, isn't, is that Paul's gospeling involves adaptation to Gentile context in such a way that the story of Israel is extended into new categories and new terms. Here one needs to read the lines and between the lines in Acts 17 when Paul is preaching on the Areopagus. What we discover, though, is that Paul keeps the story about Jesus and his resurrection. He anchors it in the story of Israel, and he points his fingers at his listeners to tell them they are accountable to God, which leads to my fifth point, a Baptist point. Gospeling in the book of Acts leads to a summons to repent, to believe, and to be baptized by immersion, of course. For adults. No gospeling is complete unless it calls people to turn from self-control to surrender to what God tells us in the story of Jesus. To sum up again, what is the gospel in the gospeling sermons and acts? Plain and simple. It is that the story of Israel is now fulfilled in the story of Jesus' life, his messianic ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his vindication by being exalted to the right hand of God. It's the same gospel we find in 1 Corinthians 15. This gospel, 
is not driven by the need for personal salvation. It is not driven by an atonement theory. It is not even driven by the grace or love or holiness of God. Instead, it is driven from beginning to end by the story of Israel coming to completion in the story of Jesus. To gospel is to announce that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. That story, if this needs to be said, awakens people to their own life, to their own usurpation of God's role in their life, and to their need to repent, confess, believe, and be baptized. But notice that the apostles did not manipulate their audience in order to manufacture decisions. They were confident enough in the story of Jesus and they simply declared that story boldly. They were not noted by persuasion so much as declaration. They were not driven by salvation so much as by Christology and not by God's wrath wrath or love, but by God's concern with history and this world. If we want to understand the gospel, we have to go to the apostolic definition, 1 Corinthians 15. And we have to go to the apostolic gospel sermons, for they ought to know what the gospel is and how to preach it. And we find seven sermons in Acts. My third point is almost cheeky in how it can surprise us. Here it is, and I make the point by asking a question. Why do you think the gospel writers, and especially the early churches, called the first four books of the New Testament the gospel? The answer is simple, and it clinches our case. They called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the gospel according to because the first four books of the New Testament are the gospel. They were not using the term gospel as a genre as we do today. They were marking the substance and content of the first four books, and they called them the gospel because they were the gospel. When we say they are gospels, we are not speaking then of a kind of literature, a genre. Instead, we're saying that they called Matthew the gospel because Matthew's gospel actually preached the gospel. Why are they the gospel? Did they preach justification by faith? Did they preach penal substitution or double imputation, a new kind of justice, a new kind of peace? Well, you can try hard as you want to show that they did, but the honest soul knows that when, he, when, when he's or she's done, trying to wrestle the first four books into our preferred categories, it can only be accomplished with force and coercion and twists and pleadings to make them say what we want them to say. I'm suggesting this is wrong-headed. If you equate gospel with justification by faith, you will be very disappointed with the gospels. Perhaps this is one reason why some today avoid the Gospels when they preach, and why some are wondering if they are preliminary to the real Gospel in the Book of Romans. In other words, though I'm putting this in nasty little terms and into their mouths, 
These people are saying, poor Jesus, born on the wrong side of the cross, didn't get to preach the full gospel. What I'm saying is that some are driven to this because they have failed to ask basic questions and go to basic texts. I'm appealing to you to consider and reconsider the original gospel. The gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians 15. It is preached in the book of Acts, and it is detailed in the four gospels. So here's my conclusion. I don't know if I'm done yet. I'm not done. So I don't know what this is a conclusion to, but it's a conclusion. The gospels are called the gospels are called the gospels, always singular, never plural for 150 years after they were written because they are the gospel. I quote an Australian, John Dixon, which ought to clinch my point because he's from Australia. All of the scriptures, if they got it right down there, it's surely right. All the scriptures point to the gospels, but only the gospels recount the gospel in all its fullness. The gospels and the gospel are one. If Dixon is right, and our sketch above suggests he is, do you realize what this means for evangelism? What this means for the basic framework of theology? We need not delay. If we are right on 1 Corinthians 15 and the gospel sermons and acts, you can see why the gospels are the gospel, because they too tell the story of Jesus as bringing to completion the story of Israel. One of the best gospel texts in the entire New Testament is the genealogy of Matthew. How's that for fun? When asking if Jesus preached the gospel, which a lot of people seem to want to ask, it is customary to show how Jesus' soteriology fits ours, or Paul's soteriology. After wrangling with the text long enough to show they fit, we stand up with a flag of victory and say, see here, Jesus preached the gospel. But this is mistaken if we are right about the gospel. Instead, we need to be asking this. To the gospel writers, does Jesus himself make sense of life by showing that Jesus is himself the completion of the story? We don't ask, first, does Jesus preach justification? We ask, does Jesus preach Jesus? I could go on. My point has been made probably too often. So the gospel and evangelicalism now. What I've just sketched seems so obvious now to me. It may irritate me at times, and it may irritate you, but any good look at gospel in the New Testament will lead to these three texts and these three questions. Do you think 1 Corinthians tells us the gospel? Do you think the gospel sermons and acts really are the gospel? And do you think the gospels articulate the gospel? I know people who say no to each of those, but I say yes, yes, yes. I think they do, and I hope you do. And if you don't, read C.H. Dodd's little book, The Apostolic Preaching and Its Developments, or read Tom Wright's chapter in his book, What St. Paul Really Said. If they can't convince you, I will never be able to convince you. But evangelicalism doesn't understand the gospel this way. Why does it understand it so differently? I want now to speculate because so far as I know, no one has really talked about this. 
As I stated yesterday, the gateway into the evangelical community is a born-again experience. You may know more than I do about this, but there is a most interesting history told very well by Patricia Caldwell about American Puritans and the need for telling a relation or a personal testimony, and I'll skip this for now. It is a small step from the Puritan relation to consider the august evangelistic preaching of Jonathan Edwards, and in particular his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a sermon more have criticized than have read. The focused energy of Edwards was to put his audience into a state wherein they could see their prospect of salvation or damnation before that kind of God. I once mentioned this sermon in a class, and a student told me afterwards that when he read it for the class, the sermon of Edwards, and I now quote him, he said, it liked to scare the shit out of me. I use that word because I haven't yet quoted Stanley Hauerwas. <laughs> anyway, Hauerwas and Edwards are not close friends, but Edwards is a prototypical example of a kind of evangelism that was designed to produce a kind of experience. And this is my point. Evangelicalism's evangelism has always been designed to preach a message in such a way that it compels a human to make a decision about themselves before an all-holy God. I want to contend that evangelicalism has reshaped the gospel into a soterian gospel so that it better produces the gateway characteristic of evangelicalism, a decision to convert. In reshaping gospeling, particular elements of a message have been featured, and those elements are drawn more from soteriology than the apostolic gospel. Those elements, again, are about God, his love, his holiness, his justice, his judgment, his wrath, about humans as fallen, about Christ as crucified, as Savior, and as atoning, and the necessary response emphasizing saving faith, trust, and obedience, and for some people, baptism as well. This soteriologizing of the gospel is at the heart of evangelicalism, so much that many think that I have said above is simply the gospel. And we have gone on the defense the moment anyone cuts into the fabric of this soteriology. But evangelicalism has bundled these items into what is probably its most compelling and persuasive order, transforming apostolic gospeling from declarative rhetoric into persuasive rhetoric. That order works like this. First, we give the positives and emphasize God's love and grace and goodness. And then we can extend this to the benefits that we as humans have. But second, then a massive rhetorical shift is introduced in our rhetoric that is designed to corner humans into what may be called liminality before God or tension in our relation to God. And that rhetoric is accomplished by working hard on the bad news of the gospel, namely God's utter wrath, God's zeal for his holiness, and God's required justice entailing utter eternal torment. The one who thought she or he was loved by God 
suddenly realizes that he or she is in, in fact, an awful state. Then the rhetoric, in nothing less than exquisite rhetorical flourishes, moves into the solution for the one in liminality, the sacrificial death of Christ, which leads forth to the one and only thing the human is required to do, receive in faith what God has done for us in Christ. This rhetorical bundling, I'm arguing, is what evangelicals call the gospel. It's not. It's a rhetorical bundling of a few elements in, of, in our soteriology, driven by God's holiness and wrath and penal substitution. The gospel, as we have said it above, is to declare the story of Jesus as the completion of the story of Israel. This evangelical gospel is the doctrine of salvation bundled into a rhetorical package designed to precipitate an experience so that people can be in and not out. It works too well because we get far more decisions and experiences than we get disciples and genuine conversions. So pastors now spend lots of time preaching to people in order to motivate them to live in a Christian way when those in the pews know with utter confidence that no matter what they do, they're safe. Not because they're Calvinists, but because they're pseudo-Calvinists who have combined eternal security, assurance of salvation, and a figure of God who is not all that different than Fred Rogers. We created this problem because it was we who are preaching a gospel the New Testament does not recognize. It is now ours to figure out how to preach the gospel Jesus and the apostles preached. The best place to begin is 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks. <laughs>